Engage podcast. My name is Andrea. I'm Anne. And today we are going to hear Crooked Shadows, written and performed by Shawnee Rowe. Whenever you're ready, Shawnee. Once Upon a Time is how most familiar stories begin. The stories we are told, not the stories that we live. The bigger, flashier stories that make the headlines and the textbooks, they can have Once Upon a Time. The real stories, the small, ordinary stories that we give as a gift to each other to share who we are or remember someone who was, these stories, usually collected and kept safe and warm by women, the tales of the individual, our quiet, collected herstory, the stories that ask, when did you lose your first tooth? When did you get your first kiss? How did you feel when JFK was shot? when MLK was shot, when the Twin Towers fell. I believe our stories are time after time after time. My grandma is, and will always be, the best book I've ever read. We start not at the beginning of my grandma's life, but at the beginning of my grandma's story. There she stood, one hand clutching her toddler's fidgeting fingers, and the other fidgeting with a coat button. The breeze was chilly and the light quite dim. Her eyes darted around the shabby courtyard in an attempt to take in where in fact she stood. In this place, in her skin, in her life, in the light. The bend of the light seemed crooked and off and somewhat insecure. Her gaze fell upon the corner of the courtyard where, in the shadow of a gable, stood a very tired rosebush. The chilly breeze robbed the almost empty rosebush of its last dried leaves. Naked against the wind, the rosebush seemed to hide there in the shadows. Did anyone even know it was there? The wind picked up. She shivered. Her toddler caught her shiver and looked up. Mommy? She looked down to meet the child's eyes and replied, Hmm? Oh, honey, I'm fine. Then she turned away to wipe a tear. It's just the wind. They both turned at the sound of jangling keys approaching behind them. I come from a long line of storytellers. Anecdote embellishers, or as my dad would say, complete bullshit artists. He told the best tall tales. The Hook. The Albino Wyuter. Old Man Murphy. Old Man Murphy's Wife. Old Man Murphy's Axe. It became a series. His personal stories were just as great. Frying Pan Coma, Best Poultry Boy, and my favorite, Florence's Flying 4-H Ladies. That one had a goat, but his stories are for another time. The best stories came from my Grandma Rosa. Every Sunday was family dinner. We were small in number, but loud in volume. We'd pass the meatballs, the spaghetti, the wine, and the cheese around the table. I grated the fresh Locatelli cheese myself. We'd talk and laugh and tease each other and stuff ourselves. It was delicious. After the plates were cleared, my grandpa would fall asleep by the fire, my mom would catch up with friends on the phone, and my brother would dutifully report back to the Millennium Falcon. My grandma Rosa, my dad, her very Irish son-in-law, and I would gather around my dad's replica old-time radio to listen to Sunday night rebroadcasts of old radio programs. Glenn Miller... Green Hornet, Abbott and Costello, and The Shadow. 
My dad would darken the room and light a kerosene lamp for effect. We'd sit in the shadows and get lost in the stories and the music of my grandma's youth. My dad poured a juice glass of whiskey, the man drank everything out of a juice glass, and passed it to my grandma. She always refused the first offer. The first offer. He'd sip. She'd sip. I'd sip. When the rebroadcast was over, my early-to-bed dad would pour a final glass, leave it for us, and say goodnight. That's when some of the best stories would spill out of my grandma, all for me. This is her hope chest, and this... This sweater was actually hers. Oh, she drawed around her shoulders and fiddled with the top button as she spoke. It fell off at some point, or perhaps it was never there. Her life unfolded, out of order, with some pieces repeated and some missing. She was a girl, then a woman with a life, all before she was my grandma. We had a boarder for a while, Shawnee. Nice, nice boy, sweet. Luigi, from the old country. He was working construction at the University of Delaware, and it was only being built at the time. Lou was right off the boat, and we were supposed to be helping him with his English. His Italian accent was so thick. We couldn't wait for him to come home every day and, and ask him about work. We were so awful. I mean, we were bad. Lou, Lou, Lou. Ciao, ciao, my little tomatoes. Lou, how was work? Buono, grazie. Mm-mm. In English. Good, good in English. Where did you work today? Why, you ask, every today. Same as before today and before today. Every today, same, same, same. I work a goddamn street. <laughs> where? A goddamn street. We knew where he worked, on Academy Street. <laughs> but we got him to curse every today, and he didn't even know it. We were, we were terrible to him, now that I think about it, especially my younger brother and I. One night, my mother shooed us out of the house for being naughty to Luigi, and we went to the duck pond. My little brother was always chasing the ducks, and they would run and quack, and he'd laugh. So this night, we were heading home for dinner, and he had to pee. He wanted to pee in the duck pond, so he, uh, anyway, he got his, um, ready with his, and <laughs> this, this mama duck bit his, you know, and he screamed and ran all the way home. I'm sure it hurt badly. Well, serves him right for chasing all those ducks all the time. I ran after him. I mean, I had to tell my mother if I could stop laughing. Mama, Mama, we, we, we were, well, he was, he makes, he always makes the ducks mad. And, um, well, he, his, uh, thing, uh, I told him not to, but he had to go. And, um, he's hurt and he did, well, his thing, I, mean, I don't, can't say got hurt. And I told him you'd be mad and he wouldn't listen. And Mama, Mama, he needs, Mama, do you hear me? Stop. Get your brother. Stop at the cry. Cry is too much. I tell you, please, please be good. And you, you older, you watch. You know the better. And now he cried. Cried too loud, too much. Why? 
Why no be good like I say, huh? He said, too much today. He's no more today. He said, no good. No, 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 no good. Ah, uh, no. No, you stop. You stop him. You wash up. I call her for dinner. No, go. Go out of my sight. Please. Be good. Please, please be good. Well, I didn't go wash my hands. I went to find Papa in his chair. He would listen. He would laugh at the duck bite and check on my brother. My Papa wasn't in his chair. He was always there, right before dinner. I found him asleep. He worked in the coal mines, such hard work, and he'd take a nap before dinner. And I get into his lap and shake him and say, manja, 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 Papa. I'd know he was awake when he started to snore. Not real snoring, cartoon snoring. Then I'd snore. Then he'd snore louder. And then I got louder. And then he got louder. <laughs> My mother would come to call us to dinner and we'd close our eyes and pretend to be asleep. But this one night he wasn't there. I sat there in that big chair waiting. The seat was dented where he sat. The upholstery was itchy, except where it was shiny, where his elbows rubbed and rubbed and rubbed. It was smooth. It smelled like sweat and coal dust and this strong soap I wasn't allowed to touch because it was too strong. It made his skin rough and cracked, and there was still coal dust in it. That chair smelled like him. Papa. Papa. Papa, where are you? <laughs> Papa? Where's Papa? Mama? Mama? No one ever answered that question, as in not ever. He was gone, just gone. Was he sick? Did he die? Did he leave them? Was he coming back? These questions were evaded or met with anger. My grandma learned to be good and stop asking. Those secrets were filed away in the shadows. She assumed he was dead, especially when her mother remarried within a year. The whole family moved from PA to Delaware. She suddenly had a new stepfather, a new home, knew everything. She was told to be good and respect her stepfather. If only he had been respectable. My stepfather, Shanine, my stepfather was nasty. Everybody thought he was such a good man, taking in a widow and her kids. He was a loud, angry, all the time, mean, violent. He drank, he gambled. He tried to, you know, grab at us. My mother wouldn't say a word against him, but she reminded me every night to lock my bedroom door, but nothing else. My mother was different with him. He had some disability, so none of us went to school. We went to work. I worked piecework with my sister and my stepsister. We got paid by the piece to sew men's shirts, and every Friday we had to bring our envelopes to my stepfather. All of it. So I got kind of sneaky, and I got myself assigned a payroll for our floor, and I made myself two envelopes. 
I knew I made more than the other two because I was fast and I didn't chit-chat and gossip like them. So I handed one envelope to him and put the other in my bra, see? And I sewed a hidden pocket in my winter coat and false hems in my summer dresses to hide the money because I knew the other two would snoop. So I gave him enough to shut him up. No sooner would we hand him the money, Shawneen, at the door. Or the guys would come over and gamble, gamble, all night. My mother would have to sneak some money into the kitchen for the house, and if he caught her, he was mean. Yelling, throwing things. He'd break glasses or plates, pound his fist so hard on the table, and yell about not getting respect. I got this still. Still from a big ashtray he threw at my mother. He missed my mother, thankfully, but oh, it shattered and flew everywhere. And he would yell at us, Now, see what you made me do. My brothers and sister were so scared. Chanin, they did anything he said. Not me. I kept away. He hated that. He would say all kinds of things about me, called me names and mocked me to my face. I don't think... No. Never. He never called me by my name. He called me Putana, always Putana. I was Putana. Putana is Italian for whore. My grandma was no whore. When someone labels you, they think they know you. They only know a story about you, a story they made up to explain what they can't understand. That becomes the story. The only reality they can see. Control. Fear is the greatest weapon of control. If we can't easily be diagnosed and cured, then we're labeled and filed away in the bad girl bin. Control. Simple, cowardly, and cruel. How easy it is to erase the individual, the inconvenient, the unpredictable that threatens the order and control. Too emotional to be dealt with, too erratic to understand. All that's left to do is pat her on the head and shoo her away. And if she can't be placated, send her to the attic or asylum where she can't infect or harm anyone else, save the shadows, the spiders, and the dust of time. Putane never learn. It was only a crooked shade. The shades were crooked almost every day, and every day I'd make them even. Even shades make it look like the house was in order from the outside. I walked in and saw they were crooked, and reached to even them out, and he grabbed my wrist and yanked my hand away. Ah, the shades! The shades, always with the goddamn shades of my house. My shades, up, but down, and nobody care. Leave him alone. I don't want no fucking light. I see you touch those shades one more time. I swear to God, I break your fucking hands off at the wrist, putana. As I stepped back, he pulled one shade all the way to the ground and ripped the other off the wall. I was scared and furious. I wanted to... to to hit him, I, I didn't know how much rage I felt. I picked up my purse and walked out the front door. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't go back in till he cooled off. I went to your grandpa's house. We were seeing each other steady by then. I stayed for a bit, and he walked me back after dinner. And my stepfather was on the front porch. 
You walk out of my house, putana, you no come back. You. You want this putana? You take her. Ah, maybe you had her already. You no want her now. You taste she rotten, dirty putana. You want a fresh. She no come back my house. She no good. Putana makes all kinds of trouble. They my fucking shades. Oh, oh. Oh, you cry for your mama. You cry for your mama. Well, well, no. No. Your mama no see you no more. No. No talk or see no more. I never went in that house again. All because of crooked shades. Crooked shades. And the last time I would let him call me Putana. It wasn't just crooked shades. It's never crooked shades. I didn't realize until so many years later, years after my grandma was gone, what was behind the crooked shadows cast by crooked shades. When the light finally filters in, it's every small verbal transgression that grows into blaming and screaming obscenities and threats. It's the punching of walls and throwing of objects that turned into the punching and throwing of you. It's every moment of every day spent insidiously sending the message, you are not enough. Every hit, emotional or otherwise, that you allow to pass because you thought you were strong enough when the truth is you shouldn't have to be. No one should have to be. When you compare the first imperceptible moment of abuse to the moment that broke, the moment that shattered... You are shocked and somewhat ashamed of the distance in between. It's never about the shades. My grandma had nowhere else to go after the crooked shades were broken. She ended up living with my grandfather's family until they were married. One night soon after the crooked shades, she was having dinner with my grandpa's family and they heard a thud on the front porch. They opened the door to find all of her Hope Chest wedding linens bundled together, thrown in a heap on the front porch. She had been disowned, thrown out like so much garbage. The rumors spread quickly. She was wearing a scarlet pea wherever she went. When my grandparents got married, all of Little Italy crammed into that church. They all wanted to see if that wicked, willful, selfish putana was pregnant. My grandma held her head high in her satin, form-fitting, no way she's hiding a baby bump wedding gown, and she walked down that long cathedral aisle all by herself. As she exited the church, filled with joy and hope, she was stopped by an uninvited guest. The only person who wasn't there to see if she was pregnant, her sister. Her sister showed up for only one reason, to see if their father was there to walk my grandma down the aisle. She wanted to know if my grandma had found him. Their father was not dead. I I was out for a walk, Shanine, with the baby in her carriage. Your grandpa had just gone to Europe to fight in World War II, and we were alone, a lot. We took a walk every night. I stopped across the street, and as I looked up, I saw my mother walking across the way, and I thought, my God, she can meet her granddaughter. So I bent over to pick up the baby, and my mother turned and walked the other way. Mama? 
Mama, please, meet your granddaughter. Just, just turn your head and see her. Mama? Why? Why, 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 why? Why you? What did I do wrong, Mama? I was good, am good, always, like you told me, always. Why won't you look at me? Why won't you look at her? She is so beautiful and so little. She hasn't done anything. Am I so bad I tainted her too? No. Oh, no, 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 no. She's perfect. She will never know the sting of my turned back. She will never feel so alone that she shivers with cold and fear because her mother wasn't there. I followed the rules. All of them. Every single rule to be good, to be quiet, to be helpful, to be kind, to blend into the background and not rock the boat and not make a scene and not be noticed until I faded so far away I didn't exist anymore. You won't look at me. I did everything you told me was right to the point where I can't identify who I am underneath the rules, outside of good and bad, out from under you and him. Am I an embarrassment? Because why? Why? Because I'm not like you? Is, is that what you wanted? Because if it is, you live so engulfed by his shadow. I don't know who you are. How could you do that to us? You stand in his shadow. I in yours. My God, so much darkness. I can't tell if my eyes are opened or closed. I am scared to breathe the darkness in. I want to live in the light and cast my own shadow. Mama. Mama. Where is my father? Huh? Answer that. Where's my papa? Is what I wanted to say. What my heart cried out in my head, what never passed my lips. I never even called her name. I looked up to see her back, hurrying in the other direction. I froze. I just froze, and she walked away from me. Years later, my brother called to say my mother had a heart attack, and although she was unconscious, she was stable. He could sneak me in after visiting hours so no one in the family would know. When we arrived at the hospital two hours after she died, the room was empty. She'd already been taken away. I lit a candle for her in the hospital chapel and said a rosary for her. I say a rosary for her every night. She died without last rites, and, well, that just wasn't good. I listened to these stories, but I never heard them. Not until, until, not until I needed to. Not until I understood not until I had the fire to be angry for both of us, to be joyful for both of us, to be sad and hurt and frustrated and curious and brave and loud and blessed for us both, too emotional to be dealt with, too erratic to understand. We're told we're shameful and hidden in the dark, relegated to the shadows. Our worth is determined by someone else, and we are duped into thinking we are acceptable only if we conform to someone else's idea of ideal. Don't speak up. Don't question. Don't rock the boat. Don't disagree. Don't complain. Don't have ideas. Don't need. Don't feel. Don't cry. Don't shout. Don't misbehave. So many don'ts. 
My grandma was 82 when she died and she wore a goddamn girdle every day of her life, actually and figuratively. Tight enough so breath was a struggle, yet loose enough for the struggle to continue. She was made to feel shame. No questions. No questions. Her father was alive her whole damn life and she was never told anything. She assumed the only warm heart on the planet, the only safe hand to hold, the only human that saw her had died. Not because she was told that, because she was told nothing. The truth was hidden in the shadows. Bigger shadows, louder shadows, faster shadows, smarter shadows, darker shadows. Eclipse authenticity, devour identity, blur the edges that define individuals. Shadows with no sense of self because they struggle in someone else's shadow. In someone else's shadow, so much darkness distorts the light and clouds reality and tricks the memory. What was I looking for? Whose shadow? The wind picked up. She shivered. Her toddler caught her shiver and looked up. Mommy? She looked down to meet her child's eyes and replied, Hmm? Oh, honey, I'm fine. She turned to wipe the tear away. It's just the wind. They both turned at the sound of jangling keys approaching behind them. The keys were on a tool belt of a tall, slim man. They jangled as he crossed the courtyard. He was introduced as Peter Albansi, the keeper of the garden and the grounds, and Rose's father. He stood in front of them silent and slightly confused. Rosa stared at his face. She'd forgotten how green his eyes were. Do you know me? Peter looked and slowly shook his head. It's Rosa. As Peter strained to see a glimmer of recognition, her little girl reached out to jingle the keys on Peter's tool belt. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Peter crouched down to look at the child's face. Ah, see, see, Rosa, he said, indicating the child. Peter took her hand in his and just stared. See, mio bambina, see. Ah, uh, mi scusi, por favore, scusami, isa da wind. Peter led them around the courtyard, pointing out some of his handiwork in the gardens. His English was broken and rough, much like the last time Rosa had heard his voice so many years ago. She was silent, drinking in Peter's kindness to the misidentified child and wanting so badly to tell him so much about the girl she was and the woman she was becoming in her skin, on her journey, in this fading light. They were familiar strangers displaced by too much time and too much distance. It was time to go sooner than Rosa would have liked. Would it ever be enough? Peter leaned down to the child that he thought was his and kissed the top of her head. Rosa wanted to... what? What? After all these years, what did she want? Her papa couldn't find her in her own face, but in the face of her child. What could ever make up for the time, the secrets, and all of the lies? What could dispel the darkness of this shadow, this shadow cast as long as a lifetime? 
as if Peter heard her thoughts. He turned and waved her to come closer. He offered his arm and escorted her to the very tired rosebush, barely thriving in the shadows of the courtyard. He clipped a branch and held a tiny bloom and an unopened bud. The branch was very thorny, so he wrapped his handkerchief around the thorns and handed it to her. For Rosa, my Rosa. She looked into his far away green eyes. Thank you. She never saw him again. Those roses didn't bloom, but their seeds took root in front of my grandma's house, where it got plenty of sunlight, but not much room to grow. It bloomed every once in a while, and my grandma would clip the blooms and give them to me, wrapped in a handkerchief to protect me from the thorns. I never pricked my finger, not once. When my grandma died, my dad transplanted the little the tired little rosebush to my parents' yard. That tired rosebush flourished so many blooms. In fact, it somehow grew another tiny rosebush right next to it, which is terrific for me because I grew a couple of roses of my own. They're a little thorny, but mostly beautiful. Olivia Rose and Lila Rose. And they will always be able to keep a little bit of my grandma out of the shadows and blooming in the light. Centodanni. Centodanni de luce. The end. The Upstage Podcast is hosted by Anne Marley and Andrea Rumblemore. Produced by David Moore and Hear It Sound and Studio. Music composed by David Moore. Find out more about the Upstage Podcast at annmarley.com slash the hyphen upstage. If you enjoy the Upstage, if you like what you hear, if you want to help support new theater, and if you want to keep hearing new plays, consider donating to our Patreon. Donations help us pay voice actors and playwrights, and we want to be able to pay our contributors fairly for their work. Any donation is appreciated, large and small alike. You can help keep small theater alive. Check out our Patreon, found on our Upstage website at annmarley.com slash the hyphen upstage. Upstage.